Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Christianity and Classical Culture on the Fleming Foundation. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and on this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for being here with me. Today, we're continuing part two of a, two, of a small mini-series on Stoicism, and in particular, this time we're going to look at letters of Seneca to Lucilius after having looked at the history and context of Stoicism in, in Greek and Roman history. Dr. Fleming, there's a lot of these letters. Can you tell us a little bit about how these letters came to be, how they were preserved for us, and, and which letter you'd like to start us off with today? Yeah, the, um, it was uh, a, a, a tradition in the ancient world to write uh, philosophical letters, Epicurus, the founder of, uh, of the, the sect of Epicureans, which was the main rival to the Stoics, Epicurus wrote letters to a couple of different friends and disciples in which he summarized his arguments. These were valuable because, you know, if you write out a formal treatise, it's, it's, you know, it's become, it becomes like reading David Hume on, on, uh, on the, the operation of the mind, you, you go to sleep and you're bored. Whereas these letters are lively and personal and, uh, and they can present things more simply. Much as, say, for example, David Hume's essays are much more, much more simply written and addressed to a popular audience. So just like um, uh, uh, Marcus Aurelius' Meditations, uh, the, 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 the letter is an informal way of communicating this. And so to a young uh, admirer, disciple, he writes a series of letters. Clearly, they are not simply aimed at his friend Lucilius. They are aimed at future generations. Seneca, no matter how much he recommends humility, he took himself very seriously. He was regarded as the greatest prose stylist of his time. And, uh, and he was certainly a, a, a literary and intellectual giant, and he assumed that, 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 that he was going to be read forever. Interestingly, uh, Seneca had an explosion of popularity in the Renaissance because the uh, Renaissance dramatic writers didn't have much access to Greek tragedy. They didn't read Greek very well. They had to read it in bad translations into Latin. But they did have the works of Seneca and uh, Latin works, which are much more bombastic than Greek tragedy, much more over-the-top, but they're also moral essays. And so Seneca's plays really are at the heart of Italian-Spanish tragedy, and you can see their strong influence on, on Elizabethan tragedy. It wasn't until maybe the 19th century that people got tired of Seneca. They, they called him a hypocrite. They said he, you know, he took all this money from Nero. He, he was a stooge for a despotic regime. I, I do think that, uh, that probably in the past 20 or 30 years, the pendulum has shifted somewhat, and there's uh, a lot more respect. He is, he is an amazingly uh, powerful writer, and for people who are not professional philosophers, uh, he, is a, he is a way of learning a great deal about philosophy and of getting a lot of depth into ethical philosophy without having to learn some abstract system. 
Now, before we start reading any of this, Darkfly, I mean, uh, th there are some texts that are available on the web for free. Do you have a particular translation? Are, are you happy with people picking up a lobe and following along? Yeah. The, the, the lobe uh, was done by Richard Gummier uh, of Haverford. He was a, he was a good scholar. As, uh, as I recall, I don't know a lot about him. And there are some penguins, and there's, of course, there are free translations uh, on a number of, uh, of websites. Uh, one from MIT. I think the Gutenberg Project also has free translations. Most of them are based on uh, uh, public, stuff available in the public domain uh, from the late 19th, early 20th century. But uh, Seneca, because... Technical language is less important for Seneca. It's not. I I, th I think people can get a lot out of a, out of a out of a translation. So, which letter you, would you like us to start with, Dr. Fleming? I want to begin with uh, the first letter. That's a nice. It's beginning at the beginning. And see, listen, listen to the the beginning because it. Uh, I'll I'm, I'll read from the Loeb translation. So, uh, continue to act in this way, my dear Lucilius. Set yourself free for your own sake. Uh, gather and save your time, which till lately has been forced from you, or filched away, or has merely slipped from your hands. Make yourself believe the truth of my words, that certain moments are torn from us, that some are gently removed, and that others glide beyond our reach. The most disgraceful kind of loss, however, is that due to carelessness. Furthermore, if you will pay close heed to the problem, you will find that the largest portion of our life passes while we are doing ill, a goodly share while we are doing nothing, and the whole thing while we are doing that which is not to the purpose. What and b being to the purpose, of course, uh, is to do your is to do your duty uh, as a human being. What man can you show me who places any value on his time, who reckons the worth of each day? who understands that he is dying daily. Again, a, a constant preoccupation of Seneca. For we are mistaken when we look forward to death. The major portion of death has already passed. Whatever years lie behind us are in death's hands. Now, this is a, this is a remarkable passage. It's very beautiful. And it is... Uh, you, it might remind some readers of uh, Jeremy Taylor's The Art of Holy Dying. But, you know, think... Before you go to bed each night, remember you're going to die, and you could die in your sleep, and so tot up what you've done during the day that's bad, and what have you done that's good? How have you wasted your time? How have you profited from it? But even more than that, it should recall, of course, the passage of St. Paul, which we have taken as the, the motto for our little foundation. That is, you know, re redeeming the time. Redeeming, meaning ransoming, getting back that which we have unwisely pawned. See, and he's saying, look, we, we, we waste our lives, uh, some on wicked things, some on worthless things, and almost everything irrelevant to the point of our existence. And so this is, uh, Seneca begins with this great appeal on how to, uh, how, how to live. And the only way to live successfully is to confront death. 
And it's interesting, Dr. Fleming, because we know that Seneca was was moving in the elite circles. He was hanging out with the rich and the powerful. And as he goes on in in letters beyond letter one, he he really makes these observations about how people spend all their time, you know, worrying about someone's opinion about them and that sort of thing. And and you're right, this this is laying the foundation for all those other letters, his obsession with using your time well. Yeah, it is. It is something which. You know, unfortunately, uh, you know, you, you hear of all the time from teachers or pastors, but there's probably, there's hardly a more important uh, ethical lesson to teach, which is to, to, to make the, to make the best out of whatever life you have. He says later on in the letter, he says, nothing is ours except time. We were entrusted by nature with the ownership of this single thing, so fleeting and slippery that anyone who will can oust us from possession. What fools we mortal be. In other words, we were given, whether it's 20 years or 80 years, we're given a small amount of time, and we fritter away watching Gilligan's Island reruns, <laughs> or, or uh, worrying about Ryan Lochte and whether he was, uh, whether he was uh, you know, actually robbed in Brazil. I mean, in fact, it's, it's as if, all, all of the news and information websites, all the entertainment on television, it's all the sports pages in the world were invented to make sure we would never make one good second's use of our time in, in the course of a lifetime. Well, which is why uh, people uh, should be happy to have a podcast from the Fleming Foundation to listen to to make good use of their time. <laughs> yes, indeed. Shameless plug aside. Um, what about uh, letter five, Doctor Fleming? Letter five takes up uh, a, a related question. Now that now that he now that uh, he's got out of the way the, the 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 important beginning theme, which is you better make use of your time. Well, how do you do it? Well, the way is to be a philosopher, and he does not mean to uh, to be a a, stu- a, a a PhD candidate in philosophy. He means to love wisdom to take life seriously, to try to understand the world uh, we're in. He says we have to be persistent and study and, 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 and work, work constantly. But also, he says that we, we shouldn't put on airs. You know, anybody who's ever, in my day, we would have said uh, Greenwich Village or, in, uh, or the left bank, you know, the, 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 where, where you, the city where you're living, Stephen, the, the cafe, what was it, Deux Magots, where yes. uh, Sartre and, and Beauvoir and all the rest would sit around. All those in, horrible people. In, in berets, smoke, smoking endless cigarettes and drinking coffee all day and talking pernicious nonsense. Well, that's one way to be a philosopher. That's, that's the classic existentialist. But in the ancient world, what it meant is you grew a long beard you deliberately wore a clothes that when you walk down the street, people would say, oh, you know, there goes Diogenes, the philosopher. He must be an honest man. And uh, what Seneca says is philosophy calls for plain living. But, I mean, you don't have to be penitential. In other words, you don't have to be wearing a hair shirt. You don't have to give up all the good things in life. Now, this is something. This is a point where Seneca parts company, perhaps, with the earliest Stoics, and he sounds very Aristotelian, because you know Aristotle says, "Well, you know what what is ha-? and we all agree that happiness is the object of human life, 
But, you know, some people just want to be pure and holy perfectly. But, you know, if you don't have a wife and kids, you don't have this, you don't have that, how happy can you be? Now, Aristotle did not understand the monastic ideal, nor would he have shared it. But he would have said, even if he shared it, he would say, well, that's fine for 1% of humanity. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the rest of us. And that includes scientists and philosophers. That, that human life is... Vert Goodness is inclusive, not exclusive. If you're, if you're dying of cancer, it's hard, you know, to be a patient uh, uh, man. And if you're, if, you're, if, if you're subject to all sorts of terrible mood swings, if you have no money, if you're, if you're despised, if you're tortured, it is not impossible to live well under those circumstances, but it's very, very difficult. And to impose it as a burden, you know, on everybody, we all have to live as if we're in a concentration camp. Well, the truth is that that really produces hypocrisy. And this, by the way, was the one thing that one of the earliest criticisms against Christians is that they were hypocrites. They pretended to despise wealth, but meanwhile they were, they were accumulating, accumulating wealth and uh, living, living it up as, as much as they could, although they would have to pretend. And we've all seen these people in church who go in with a sad face, the pious look, and you drive off in a Lexus. So, so how to be a philosopher is the object. Be study, be persistent, and but not ostentatious. And this is a little reminiscent of one of my favorite early works of Christian apologetics, the Epistle to Diognetus, where the writer says, "Look, we Christians are normal people." We don't dress funny. We don't act funny. We pay our taxes. We're good neighbors. We, we, there are just two things we don't do. We uh, <clears throat> don't have sexual relations with members of the same sex. And we don't, we don't murder our children. Other than that, we're, we're, we're fairly normal people. Because, the accus because any, any movement it, it will tend to degenerate into a cult. And, uh, you know, I've, I've known a lot of traditional Catholic families and some uh, very pious Protestant families. They dress their children like they've been watching too many episodes of Little House on the Prairie. The girls have to be made deliberately ugly, and they, put, they cut their hair funny, and the clothes are badly fitting, and, you know, they don't bathe often enough. And, and because it's an ostentatious display of piety which doesn't mean anything. And Seneca is saying... Don't worry about the externals. Worry about the internals. I, I, I will say, Dr. Fleming, among uh, our little chapel here, there is a, a noticeable lack of what we call potato sackers. Uh, <laughs> it, might, it might just be that Paris has a different level of, of, uh, of demand when it comes to fashion. But. Listen, when, 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 when French or Italian women st start, uh, start doing the Laura Ingalls Wilder thing, we'll know the world has come to an end. <laughs> it, is, it is the end. Uh, in the same letter, he is a great man who uses earthenware dishes as if they were silver. But he is equally great who uses silver as if it were earthenware. Exactly. It is the sign of an unstable mind not to be able to endure riches. Exactly. I know it would be, it, it would be tough for all of us but uh, <laughs> to uh, learn to endure riches. But that, that is the, being able, being strong enough not to have your head turned by, by, uh, by new cars, new computers, high status. 
this is this is one of the hardest things in the world. And so he's Seneca, and he's obviously talking from his own experience, you know, because he is he's among the richest people in the world. He's rich. He is comparatively wealthier than Donald Trump. Right. And, and it's interesting because he, he's actually reversing the paradigm that we think of. And I, I can't remember who who says this exactly, but something along the lines of it takes great character to um, uh, to deal with onslaughts of good fortune. Yes. You just keep getting good fortune. You keep getting good fortune. And and do you can you still preserve your character as you keep piling up riches? You know, Gregory the Great in the Magna Moralia says there, there, among the things he says, it's a very great book, but he said there, there are two real problems. You know, some people can be overwhelmed by success, you know, and there it goes to their head. They can't, they, they may, don't maintain their balance. They fall into wicked ways. He said, on the other hand, there are some people who can't stand failure. You know, they may be born well-to-do and successful. They lose their money and social position. They fall into despair and they're on the point of suicide. It's how you handle the circumstances in life, not the circumstances themselves that are so important. And Seneca's saying, don't pay attention to the externals in either direction. Don't, don't, don't get attached to wealth, but don't have this affectation of poverty and humility, which, uh, w- which may be totally uh, inappropriate to you. Later on in number 48, which we'll talk a little bit more about later, he also says, in trying to lead a philosophical life, just don't show off your technical knowledge of philosophy. This is sort of what we would call sophomoric. You know, the, the kid who comes home from college and he's, you know, he's had, he said Kantianism 101. And, and he wants to argue with everybody and show off his technical expertise. I, 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 I had a son who's a philosophy major, so believe me, I, I know what I'm talking about. There's a, there's, a, there's a great little essay by Plutarch. Plutarch is very eclectic, part Stoic, part Platonist. But Plutarch has one, how, how you know you're making moral progress. Now, this is, this is a great question. How do I know that I'm getting better? And he tells the story about a, um, a man who, sa- who was trying to make himself a better person. And one day he said to his, sir, his, his slave girl, he said, look, Dionysia, Look, look how humble I have become. So uh, this is obviously he was not making the progress he thought he made. But Plutarch says, you'll know you're making moral progress when you give up using technical jargon to talk about moral questions. When you can talk about things in an ordinary language without trying to impress people all the books you've read. And Seneca is saying much the same uh, in, in some of the passages in uh, in the epistle 48, lay off the jargon, lay off the, the quibbling of little points. I think he has one thing is as well, um, a, a mouse eats the <laughs> yeah. cheese. Well, mouse is a noun, right? So the noun eats the cheese. Is, does that make any sense? And he said the, 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 the handbooks of philosophy are full of this foolishness, which distract you from the important things, which are which are which are not quibbles about words, but how to live, how to live properly. Right. He follows, he, he follows that up by saying, do we knit our brows over this sort of problem? Do we let our beards grow long for this reason? Is this the matter which we teach with sour and pale faces? Yeah. Cicero had said, you know, in, uh, the, the, in a couple of works, including the De Officiis, but also the De Finibus, 
Somebody asked, and one of them, somebody says, have you read such and such a stoic treatise? And he says, I don't have time for that stuff. He said, it's just full of technical quibbling. He said, if a man can't learn to write well and persuasively, I, I don't have the time to read it. And that, that is, Cicero knew the Stoics well, and many of his best friends were Stoics. But he, uh, he drew the line when it came to their, their, their technical quibbles. And goodness knows what, what, a, what would a professor of philosophy be doing today, especially in the, in the Anglo-American school where everything in, involves analysis of language and, and, and terms of language. So Seneca is saying, grow up, grow up and c c confront the, the realities of human existence, at, which is an endless moral struggle to lead a life of consciousness and uprightness uh, with, within a very difficult world. Because the back, remember, the backdrop to this work, to, to Seneca, is, of course, the, the, the court of Nero, and before that, the court of Claudius, and the world of Caligula. And as, as monstrous as those people were, more important than that was the, the, uh, the fatuousness, the frivolity of the post-classical world. There are many very beautiful things about uh, about Alexandria. They wrote some beautiful poetry and, and beautiful technical philosophy. But when you tear people up from their roots, from say, their, all their ancestors had lived in the in the countryside around Athens. They had worshipped the local gods. They got married. They had children. They they, they look forward to grandchildren. There, there's a certain kind of integrity of the peasant life lived in one place on the soil. When you destroy that as it was being destroyed in the Hellenistic Age or in the early Roman Empire or, for that matter, in uh, 19th century Britain and uh, late 19th century America. You take that away from people and they lose their bearings. They don't know how to live. They have no compass anymore. The community used to give them a compass and now it, it, it does not. And so instead, what, what do they do? Do they... You, the, the, the simple answer is, well, you obey the law, and uh, whatever the thou shalt nots are, you make sure that you don't do them. And Seneca says, that's all very well, but unless you have a coherent understanding of what, what virtue is and how to live virtuously, you're going to be vulnerable at every, at every point. You're going to be any, any new crazy idea, any silly thing said by Madame Clinton or President Obama, whatever, or whoever it is, you, you're, you're going to be at their mercy because you can't defend yourself rationally and coherently. And so serious study, serious contemplation, but not technical gibberish. Well, and that's I guess that's bringing us back to letter five and that idea of community and your fellow man. That's right. He, you, the, 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 the need to, uh, to, to study and to maintain higher standards than, than ordinary, not to detach yourself from ordinary people, to respect them and to look at wherever they're, they're, you can find goodness in them, but you, that, but you have to understand that you are seeking for something more. But on the other hand, it is, you, you should be developing not a sense that I'm holier than they are. On the contrary, the, the three terms he uses are sensus communis, the common sense, that is, the sense, the, the, the shared sense of common identity, humanitas, humanity, 
that is, the kindness we owe to our fellow human beings, and congregatio, congregation, that is, our sociability, the need to live within a human society. Philosophy requires us to live plainly, as, as we mentioned before, but not to torture ourselves. Uh, and he then says, uh, in, in, in language very reminiscent of the New Testament, he says, we shouldn't be sitting around worrying about the future. Yes, our, we may lose our money, we may lose our social position, all these things may go away, but take no thought for them. Live as well as you can from day to day, because that's what you have. The past is already dead, the future doesn't exist, and you may not be there to, to, to enjoy it if it does exist. So, you know, take no, th take no thought for yourselves. Be like, the, be like the lilies of the field. Well, continuing with that lilies in the field theme, and as you say, echoes of the New Testament, letter 14 is on the reasons for withdrawing from the world. Yeah, that's uh, and on the one hand, uh, the Stoics require their 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 students to uh, detach themselves from some of the cares of everyday life and from being attached to worldly things. But um, on the other hand, don't you owe things to the society around you? Can you fully detach yourselves, as say the early Stoics and Epicureans? wanted you to. That is to lead only a life of the mind. And uh, he raises the question. It's a, a philosophy says to Cato, what do you care? You, 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 you put your life on the line to save the Roman Republic, but really the issue at hand was whether Pompey or Caesar would become the dictator. What could you possibly care? And of course Cato, the younger Cato, was a very prominent Stoic, and, and set the pattern for future Stoic senators who opposed imperial despotism. He, um, at this point, Seneca postpones the general question, do I owe anything to my society? As a Roman, he can't say, no, I don't. But he does say, he does praise the Stoics who, instead of taking an active part in the political sphere, as, as Seneca himself did and is still doing and when he's writing this letter, but instead uh, went off to contemplate and wrote, wrote treatises on the proper conduct of life and of the commonwealth. That they, they, they did a better job by writing about it and, and, and trying to bring up coherent rules for a decent commonwealth rather than uh, engaging in the struggle for power. Now, again, Dr. Fleming, the, the name of the show is Christianity and Classical Culture, and I'm sure those of our listeners who are Christians are, are nodding at a lot of the points that Seneca is making. It, it make, they make sense within our construct, uh, but we, are de we, we have the benefit of being born 2,000 years after uh, our Lord uh, came to this earth. The, the, I think what's more interesting to contemplate is how did words like this sit with the Romans of the, of the time? You know, was it the avant-garde, you know, crazy literature? You know, ah, you're reading Stoicism. That's nutty. No, uh, it was not. In fact, it was... Stoicism was to the Roman elite what leftism is to the American elite. You know, it was... Maybe they couldn't live up to its principles. Maybe Harvard professors don't really share their wealth with the junior faculty. You know, maybe they live in restricted neighborhoods where there are no minorities, but they still 
preach, you know, this kind of a Marxist global paradise, which they don't live up to. So the Roman elite class looked upon Stoicism as the highest political uh, and moral ideology available to them. I think it's also one of the reasons why some members, even by the time of Domitian, that is, even by uh, before 100 AD, some members of the Roman elite were getting curious about Christianity because it seemed to, to offer a, a way of life and a way of thought to simple people which previously had only been accessible to students of philosophy. I also wanted to ask you, Dr. Fleming, some people who have never read Seneca's letters, they may not be familiar with the, 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 the style and the certain greetings and leavings that you take in the letter. And at the end of most of these letters, he, he often says, I'm going to leave you with a gift. And, and there's a, a long sort of ritual paragraph or two in which he takes his leave of his correspondent. Could you tell us a bit about that? Well, Roman, Roman letters were originally very... Uh, formal and stylized. And so uh, if you look at, uh, for example, Cicero's letters, they often begin with a, with a string of single letters. That is, their abbreviations, you know, it, which stand for, if you are fine, then I'm fine, and everything is fine, and, and, and I, Cicero, wish you the best. And then you, So it's, um, I don't know if you've had a lot of occasion, Stephen, to write to highbrow uh, Frenchmen, but you have to be, you have to end your letter with something like uh, "croyez, monsieur, uh, les, les sentiments très, you know, blah blah, très, blah 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 blah." It's, it's, it's not just that, doctor. When you get your letter from the internet company yeah. or yes, from, yeah. from, from from the for the gas, it says, "Please be." I think the phrase is in English it would translate, "Please be assured, my dear sir, of our most distinguished greetings," or something along these lines. Yes, and, I, yes. and, and as I'm reading the the gas bill from from the company, I'm. I'm picturing, you know, the court of, of one of the French kings and say, this is the legacy yes, yes. Of, 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 uh, of courtly language. No, they, they, they use words like, veuillet, you know, <laughs> you know they, they, this, this weird subjunctive form. The, the whole thing, and by the way, the Italians are exactly the same. When I was, uh, when I was in my early 20s, I got in correspondence, I wanted to get a, a, a papyrus of a fragment of, uh, of Aeschylus, Seven Against Thebes, and it was at the it was at a library at the Sorbonne, and so I write the curator, and she and I write her a a, a letter in my schoolboy French, and it was just straightforward. Well, she writes back, you know, you know, please believe in, please accept the my blah blah. So I said, okay, two can play this game, and I I had a I had a French I had a French professor, and so I started upping the ante and eat with longer and longer and longer conclusions and this lady the ar- ar- the at the at the archivist she 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 then met me at every round and topped me so <laughs> <laughs> it's not something you can win so um the uh seneca uses the language of uh, often of gift giving and accounting when he's reckoning up the the benefits uh, and what you owe to a friend. So I, 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 please set this down to my account or I set it down to your account because friendship, now it's obviously humorous, but friendship for the ancients, not just for the Romans, but for the Greeks and for the Jews. Friendship, it means reciprocity. And so if I do you a favor, 
of even if the favor is just good advice, well, then you owe me a favor. There's a ledger. There's an account book in which we're, we're e- each one is trying to outdo the other. It's interesting that, uh, that our Lord uses this uh, at one point, uh, and it's very similar to some, thing, some uh, pagan writing, but he says, when you invite, don't, invite peop- don't, don't invite people to dinner thinking they'll invite you to a bigger dinner. You know, in other words, when you do when you do somebody uh, a favor, don't do it with the explicit expectation that it's going to be like a potlatch ceremony. Oh, uh, you 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 you've set your your Lincoln Continental on fire. I better set my Rolls Royce on fire. But uh, but there but the but the 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 duties of friendship are 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 first of all important. Seneca, they're important to everybody in the ancient world. But the, the notion of these reciprocal obligations. So what Americans don't seem to realize is that friendship is very difficult to maintain. It is not something, oh, we're friends now. I guess that means I can, I can do anything I want. Oh, I know I'm supposed to have dinner with you, but I've got a better offer. No, no. Friendship requires constant maintenance. It's like a finely tuned sports car. It, it just can't be left on its own because that's how, how friendship dies. And so friendships are maintained in traditional societies. Friendships are maintained by gift, by gift exchange, by do, doing each other favors, by uh, if, I, if I have trouble, you, sh- you show up at court and testify on my behalf. If I'm more important than you are, then you come to my house and greet me at the appointed time to, to swell the crowd that shows everybody how important I am. This is this was this was life in the Roman Republic and it's life in the Roman in the Roman Empire. And although Lucilius and Seneca are social equals, they're not equals in age, learning, experience, or in in, in wealth and power. And so, uh, but Seneca tries to outdo his young friend in uh, in, uh, in 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 the bestowing of favors. And you know, one of uh, it's not a moral epistle, but one of. Uh, one of Seneca's big uh, essays is on beneficia, uh, on on doing uh, on doing good to your friends, and what what the moral obligations are. It was it was very much at the center of his moral code. It, it, it's it's interesting you talk about the different traditions that people can can pull from it, and that Seneca quotes different authors. If he had had a copy of the New Testament in his time period, I'm sure he would have taken great delight in some of the sayings of our Lord, thing, uh, things that uh, would be very practical to a Stoic, the idea of taking the lowest place at a banquet so that you could be moved up. I mean, I could see a Stoic saying that very easily. Yes, yes. No, there's so much, and there's so much that uh, when uh, I, I once sat down with, with the text of Seneca and the text of Paul's letters, and you can find parallels up up and down uh, the Pauline epistles and, 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 these, and these moral epistles. Pa- Paul is just giving you, uh, there, there are things that are obviously not, 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 not similar at all, but the, but the outlook, the, the stress on, on, on kindness and gift-giving and friendship and uh, being uh, sort of non-judgmental to your, to, uh, your friends the notion of, uh, of, for example, uh, doing unto others as you would have them do unto you, it's, uh, it, is, it, is, uh, it, is a, it is an ethic which the Romans were prepared to understand. You also selected letter number nine, Dr. Fleming. Why? 
Well, first of all, what am I, if I have a hobby horse, it is on the significance of uh, friendship uh, in, uh, for leading a coherent ethical life. And number nine is on the relationship between uh, friendship and philosophy. And so he has a number of musings on this. And one of the, uh, it, it's implicitly an argument, or explicitly actually, it's an argument against the Epicurean view that we really uh, don't need friends. Now, Seneca, um, most, most Stoics hated Epicurus and his disciples. Seneca is too well-read and too wise for that. He understands that the crude view of Epicurus, that he just told people to live it up, to eat, drink, and be merry, is not true at all. But that, uh, that Epicurus' desire was that his people who followed his way of life would be untroubled and they could pursue a tr tranquility and happiness in a kind of religious contemplation. And he says, you desire to know whether Epicurus is right when in one of his letters, notice again, uh, philosophical letters, he rebukes those who hold that the wise man is self-sufficient and for that reason does not uh, stand in need of friendship. Uh, this is the objection raised by Epicurus against Stilbo and those who believe that the supreme good is a soul insensible to feeling. Now, Epicurus is funny because on the one hand, Epicurus is supposed to uh, told his students to rise above ordinary human feelings and to face the death of a child or, or a slave with calmness. And yet we know from uh, anecdotal evidence and from his own letters, we know that he took the loss of a friend or even a slave, he took it very, uh, uh, very seriously indeed. Then uh, he says... Um, Seneca says, uh, there is this difference between ourselves, by which he means the Stoics, and the other school, which always means the Epicurean. Our ideal wise man feels his troubles, but overcomes them. Their wise man does not feel them. But we and they alike hold this view that the wise man is self-sufficient. That is, the idea of moral autarky. That is, uh, that you can provide what you, uh, what you need for yourself. This is a, this is a, in, in one sense, bo yes, both Epicureans and Stoics believe that. The, however, Seneca only believes that to a very limited degree because he says, you don't absolutely need other people, which by the way is not true. This is where, where I think Seneca's wrong and I think, uh, a, uh, a Christian can tell you why he's wrong, that, that, we, that, just, uh, you know, that God created us so that we would love each other and love God, that we, we, we don't exist for ourselves. And Seneca understands that probably better than just about any ancient thinker, but he's, but he's sort of trapped into this language of, of, of self-sufficiency. He says, uh, we Stoics, he says, we rise, we... we, we, we we, we, we love our friends, we need our friends, but if we lose them, we can rise above the pain. He says, a wise man, uh, in fact, does need friends and neighbors, no matter how self-sufficient he is. This, is. this is an Aristotelian point, you know. Uh, the individual is not self-contained. You know, if you, if you were a, a six-month-old baby, obviously you can't survive. If you're a 10-year-old child, you probably won't survive. 
but quite apart from material needs, we have social and emotional and moral needs. We have cultural needs. And to some extent, they are fulfilled in the first level of human social organization, which is marriage and the family. However, even a mar marriage and the family, there's not sufficient division of labor and variety of resources. You know, you can, not everybody can make his own horseshoes, his own dresses, his own wine, distill his own liquor, I mean, make his own cheese. And in fact, you would never do anything but that if you just were uh, supplying material needs. So a proper household has to have servants, and, but these households are integrated into village communities of kinfolk, which are themselves integrated into, in, into a commonwealth. And, and, and Seneca understands that. He says, oh, we, 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 the individual cannot be perfectly self-sufficient. In other words, his autarky is limited. But he has to learn how to accept loss with equanimity. When you lose something, whether it is a, whether you lose a valuable uh, silver vase, or you lose an estate, or you lose a wife, or a child, or a friend, you have to learn how to live without this valued possession or relationship. But it, it's, but you, you're not unaffected by it. He quotes one of my favorite uh, thinkers of the ancient world who's only known through fragments, that is Hecaton. And Hecaton was a, was a, was a Stoic, but also he, he borrowed a lot from other schools of thought. And he, and he says, Hecaton says that he could give you a, a magic potion that's worth any, 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 more than any other magic potion. And he sums it up in, in Latin. Hecaton was, of course, a, a Greek writer. Si we samari... Ama, if you want to be loved, love. Now this this is comes this this comes very close to a Christian ethic. If you you have however you want to be treated in life is the way you have to treat other people. Hmm. And again, as you're talking about the purpose and the nature of friendship, uh, in in your translation, the, the one that we're using, if look at. Uh, 15 within uh, letter 9 therefore although he is self-sufficient yet he has need of friends yes he craves as many friends as possible not however that he may live happily for he will live happily even without friends the supreme good calls for no practical aids from outside it is developed at home and arises entirely within itself if the good seeks any portion of itself from without it begins to be subject to the play of fortune. That idea of you are going to be a better friend because you have cultivated within yourself. Yeah. Again, this is, this is, this is thinking which is close to Hecaton. Hecaton held to the um, uh, a Stoic principle uh, which they call oikiosis. Oikiosis means sort of domestication. You're born into this world only caring about yourself and maybe the, the mother's breast. And as, as you get a little older, it's mother and father, brother, sister, grandparents. And then you're, you're in radiating circles outward as you grow morally to care about the neighbors, about your fellow townsmen, your fellow citizens. And only by this orderly progression do you learn to care about the, uh, the entire human race, which which the Stoics, of course, emphasize very strongly, the brotherhood of man. 
Unfortunately, when this idea is revived in the 18th century, skip all those early steps. Forget about mom and pop and grandparents and neighbors and fellow citizens. They don't count any more than somebody in China. And that, that kind of rationalist enlightenment thought has meant the death of very specific duties and cultural institutions. Seneca nor, and, and nor his, uh, the, the, the writer he admires so much, Hecaton, neither one of them would, would tolerate that for a minute. Yes, we have to learn how to deal without friends or without these, these external relations. We can't be completely dependent upon them, but really they are, they are instruments of our happiness we, as we grow out. But it all starts with this core of, of love and friendship in our, in our domestic life. Well, Dr. Fleming, we could go on and on, but in in the tradition of Seneca, I'm going to ask you to bring our discussion to a close and and leave our readers with a thought or two that we didn't speak about today, but that you'd like to make sure that we don't end this episode without mentioning. One thing I would ask our readers to do is go back and read the Acts of the Apostles, and there's a very interesting... Uh, you know, Paul is Paul, Paul is held up, led up on charges by a Roman governor, I get in Achaia or whatever, and of course the governor is uh, Junius Gallio, who is Seneca's own brother, and so we have this meeting of the two worlds: the Jewish tent maker, the, the ex-Pharisee, the student of Gamaliel, coming who knows enough Greek philosophy to talk to a Roman governor, and then and and and, and the brother of Seneca. And we see, it's almost as if this is a, a fable. It's almost like it was conco- a story concocted to show the convergence of the two worlds. But those convergences must have been happy, ha- beginning to happen then. And within a hundred years, it was everyday routine that, that Christians and Stoics were learning to appreciate each other. For those listeners who uh, didn't know, all of the all the letters that we've been reading today are in the show notes, so you can go back and read them further. As uh, Dr. Fleming and I noted, we just looked at excerpts today from them, so we hope that you do, and we hope that you follow Dr. Fleming's advice to also read the Acts of the Apostles. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, please email thomas at fleming.foundation. We want to remind you that Christianity and Classical Culture is a production of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to james at fleming.foundation. As always, thanks to our Gold and Charter members who we produce these podcasts for and who ensure that they can be produced in the first place. I want to thank Dr. Fleming for his time. And until next episode, on behalf of the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.